Welcome to the Job Shop Show, where we talk with the owners, suppliers, partners, and customers of custom manufacturers. Listen and learn the secrets of top-performing job shops, the tools, techniques, and backgrounds that have made them successful, all in the quest of raising the bar for custom manufacturing. I'm your host, Jay Jacobs. This episode is sponsored by Paperless Parts, connecting buyers and suppliers of custom manufactured parts. The Paperless Platform is a secure, ITAR-compliant, cloud-based manufacturing system for suppliers that reduces the amount of time spent on sales, estimating, quoting, administration, and order processing. It offers seamless integration with the accounting and ERP software tools that shops already use, such as QuickBooks, E2, and JobBoss. Paperless Parts was founded with a mission to make manufacturing more accessible by streamlining the quote-to-cash process. Spend less time quoting and more time selling. This episode is sponsored by our friends at the NTMA, the National Tooling and Machining Association. The NTMA is an association of privately held, entrepreneurial-based, and family-owned businesses, representing nearly 1,200 small to mid-sized machine shops and tool and die shops across the country. They have approximately 30 very active regional chapters that host local events, run apprenticeship programs, and provide other services to their regional members. As an association of peers, the goal of the NTMA is to help members of the U.S. precision custom manufacturing industry achieve profitable growth and business success in a global economy through networking, workforce development and training, technology, best practices education, advocacy, programs, and services with industry partners. To learn how your company can get involved with the NTMA, including how to join, visit ntma.org. Shazam! This is Jay Jacobs. Welcome to the Job Shop Show. We have a different flavor of the show today, as instead of talking to a shop owner, we will be talking to a manufacturing leader and professional manager who, in early 2020, was brought in by third-generation owners of a large shop to act in the president role at their company. Our guest today is Jeff George of Microtronics in Tempe, Arizona. Microtronics started out as a EDM shop in 1968 and has since become a world leader in supplying precision machine components, rubber products, mechanical assemblies, and EDM services to the industry's leading aerospace companies and recently has been branching out more into other industries. They got there by continually asking themselves, how else can we help our customers? And by having impeccable quality. Their 2020 NADCAP audit for recertification in the rubber molding area had zero findings, which meant they achieved merit status, which is extremely rare. We're going to dive deep into systems and processes that got them there so they achieved that merit status and hopefully extract from Jeff what is actionable for both Microtronics and shops in general to implement, talk a little bit about hiring professional managers. And then I'm curious about some of the rubber and elastomeric stuff that they are doing. It's not common processes, and I want to learn more. A lot of ground to cover, so let's start. Welcome to the Job Shop Show, Jeff. Hi, Jay. Thanks for having me. Look forward to talking to you this morning. We're going to have a lot of fun, get into systems and processes, but first... You came on board in March of 2020. What timing? What was that like? Well, it was great timing. Yeah, my first day was March 16th. Not one I'm going to forget, you know, to refresh everyone's memory almost a year ago when the United States finally got serious about 
COVID and started shutting everything down. So the first week on the job here, president comes out, says, you know, we're taking this serious. Uh, we're not allowing anybody in the country. He'd done that a couple of weeks before I joined. And then the shops start, started shutting everything down. Unless you were in central business, you were asked to close, social distance, wear your masks. All this came out during that first week on the job here. And being an aerospace industry, it hit us hard. All of a sudden, the, the international flights stopped, the domestic flights stopped, and our entire business is on hold. And we have to start communicating with our customers, see what this means for us. And it's really hard to come in your very first week, tell the owners, we got a big problem here. We're going to have to come up with a new strategy for this year because it's not going to go the way we talk. And being in the aerospace industry, you didn't know the impact yet, but when planes stop flying, that probably means that they won't be buying as many parts in the future, at least until it's sorted out. So yeah, with, with, with the metal and rubber components that we make, you know, they're wear products on the aircraft. Mm. So they get replaced, reused. Fortunately, I've been through the 9-11 recovery, mm -hmm. been through the uh, recession of 2008, 2009. And uh, I really drew on a lot of those experiences to try to figure out what our immediate strategy needed to be. And I think I made some pretty good estimates on exactly what we expected to see for a drop, at least in the aerospace category. Let's frame the conversation for the listener by understanding your background and what got you to Microtronics. And on LinkedIn, it shows that you are a degreed engineer from Lehigh. How did you start using your engineering degree after you got out of school? Well, actually, it started before I got out of school. I had a summer internship with a company at that time called Chicago Rawhide. It was since bought out by SKF, which is the largest bearing manufacturer in the world based in Sweden back in the 90s. But I had started with us with Chicago Rawhide in 85 as a co-op student. They must have been happy with what they saw in me and offered me a full-time position in 86 when I graduated. With that, I became a compound process engineer, as it was called. So I was able to work on formulating rubber compounds and then getting into processing, you know, the, the handling, the molding, adhesive, the bonding of all the rubber compounds to metal. They specialized in seals and other elastomeric devices at that time. So chemical engineering was a nice degree to have to get into that. I had the chemistry to work on the formulation. I also had the engineering to look at the mechanical processes and the chemical processes that were involved with all that. After a few years there, I, I decided I was working both aerospace and automotive. And my time was split kind of 50-50. And it was real interesting dichotomy there because automotive was all about how do we do it cheaper cost. So it was about you know, reducing the performance of the rubber compounds to the bare minimum uh, to get a lower cost compound that would meet all the specifications. On the aerospace side, it was, we don't care what the rubber costs. We need the top performance out of this material. And it doesn't matter what the rubber costs because that's just a couple dollars per pound. And we're going to bond it to things like titanium and especially stainless steels that are going to drive the cost of the products. So I, I kind of leaned, eh, I, I like the aerospace. I like doing things for high performance, high quality, precision manufacturing. <laughs> and so I went, left uh, Chicago Ryan at the time, went to work with Lord Corporation, who was actually the industry leader in rubber adhesives. 
based in Erie at the time, but since moved into North Carolina as their headquarters and just recently was purchased by uh, Parker. And it's now part of the Parker Corporation. What were your roles there? Uh, again, aerospace focused, 100% on that. And so I was uh, also doing some rubber compounding, but primarily was new product introduction, working as a process engineer. So any new product that we uh, developed, and a lot of these were mostly elastomeric bearings. Uh, so these are laminated bearings of rubber and steel laminates in different geometries that would basically replace the old lubricated traditional bearings uh, in things like helicopter rotor heads. Uh, we'd be making aircraft engine mounts and those types of products where you needed precision movement and resistance in three dimensions. And my job was to, okay, here's the new design, go figure out how to make it in the shop. So by picking the rubber, developing the mold, working with the technicians, making a production-worthy process, that's really where I got started, I'd say, with Six Sigma Lean Manufacturing. Yeah, so engineering school, if you have a chemical engineering degree, probably teaches you about the material properties. But I remember engineering school, we didn't have a lot about process. Yeah. How did you learn that? Because if you are compounding elastomerics, you want that to be consistent. And so you had to develop, as you said, that process. How did you understand or, or how were you trained? And this sounds like some of the first process background that you acquired. Yeah, with, with both SKF and Lord Corporation, very engineering-driven companies, which helped a lot. So a, a lot of people talk about rubber products being a black art, and it's, it's not really. There, there's a lot of science behind it. So, you know, in the molding process, you're looking at pressure calculations, flow patterns, flow distribution, and then with the adhesives, you also have the chemical properties. So there's chemical reactions going on during the molding process, not only within the rubber to cross-link the rubber, but then also the bonding of the rubber to the metal or other substrates that you might have. And with that, you know, you, you learn not only about the process properties, but then with these uh, last married bearings, for example, the mechanical properties of it really come into play. So as you develop uh, different elastomeric bearings that are going helicopter rotor heads, you need to understand spring rates, how those are going to react to force, stresses and strains. Uh, a lot of finite element analysis was done in the design of the parts, as well as uh, performance of it. And then I've got into aging of the materials. So not only after manufacturing, how they perform, but rubber ages over time. There's chemical reactions that go on. There can be fluid interactions that go on. And mm -hmm. so really drew a lot on the chemical engineering background that I had to make these life predictions. Uh, and that was something kind of unique, at least in my career. Not a whole lot of people can, you know, take that perspective and uh, make those extrapolations. How did that then translate to your move to running a couple contract manufacturers in the 90s? Well, I think at the same time I was working in uh, Erie for Lord, I was also going to school for my MBA at Penn State. I graduated with the MBA and it was kind of time to make a career change, do something a little bit different, move away from the pure engineering. And I wanted to get into the, the management and business end of things. And so with that, a great opportunity came up, worked for a company in Wisconsin called Molded Dimensions. It was, you know, classic you know, startup entrepreneurial situation. Uh, the company had been around for about 30 years, built as a urethane molding company, and they were just growing their rubber 
products at that point. So when I joined them, I'd say it was probably 60% urethane products, 40% rubber products. And by the time it ended, we were probably doing 75% rubber, 25% urethane, being able to bring both the, the rubber formulation and the process experience there. And that was great. Now, I started as the engineering manager there, grew into the chief operating officer role, and then uh, moved on to another company in Wisconsin uh, where I became the president. And both of them were contract manufacturers. So no real product design going on, strictly manufacturing. So, uh, What sort of quantities were typical at each of them? I would say they're small to medium volume houses. So it would range from a single piece up to say 100,000 a year. Did you have to develop a lot of documentation? Yeah, that was one of the, the unique things and kind of is an interesting parallel to today's work is, you know, coming from the larger corporations, you know, a lot of systems and structures are already in place. When you go to the smaller company, as you might guess, you know, growing up from uh, much smaller beginnings, the systems and structures don't exist. And so it, it really gives you the opportunity to having that perspective of, of knowing what systems you need to put in place, having the industrial engineering background that I was picking up as I was going along with the lean manufacturing training. It's, yeah, you need to get the statistical control. And so where you could build in more robust materials, more robust processes, then get a grip on your overall quality and throughput. So you could be competitive in the marketplace. And that's really what I brought, I think, to, to Molded Dimensions and later, later on Barden was this idea of okay, we, we, we're just not going to grab all these different things. We must've had 150 different rubber compounds at molded dimensions when I got there. It's like, well, you only use three pounds of this, four pounds of that, this other thing, let's consolidate. So I, I got them working towards inventory reduction, consolidation, and using materials and blending between materials such that we could have an overall lower inventory but much broader product offering. At the same time, with the volumes increasing, you get all the economies of scale. I'm going to bookmark a whole bunch of questions that I have for you on systems and process, sure. just so that we understand more your career and then get a sense of Microtronics. You then went to SKF and you said that they are the largest bearing manufacturer in the world. So their volumes must be incredibly high. What did you do there? And what did you, more importantly, what did you learn there? And how, what do you see that's different than in contract manufacturing? Oh yeah, it's different end of the spectrum entirely. So I was doing somewhere around $10 billion in global sales, operated across automotive, industrial, aerospace, and a whole aftermarket service group. 40,000 employees worldwide. I started there again as uh, more of the engineering manager, but then back into product design. So a very design-focused company. Stayed in aerospace. So I was working within the uh, aerospace division of SKF. And uh, over time, managed between you know one up to four different locations for manufacturing of aerospace products probably ended with a total of a responsibility of about 450 people, four locations as the uh, vice president and one of the two global operating managers. So with the, uh, you know, SKF having the automotive side, you got to see full, you know, volume, what that looks like when you're making 10 million pieces of the same part a year, uh, a tremendous amount of automation, depending on 
what product you were making. So even though my core wasn't in the bearings, it was in the elastomeric products and the component support and making metal seals, rubber seals, and precision balls for the bearings. I often visited the high volume bearing plants, just blown away by some of this stuff. So for example, on the wheel bearings for my BMW that I drive, I got to see the assembly line. Oh, wow. That consisted of 60 functional machines in the cell, three operators to oversee those 60 machines, tons of robotics. They're putting out a bearing every 30 seconds, let's say, and that's complete. So, you know, from loading the balls in, testing it, applying the seals, doing the dimensional checks, all automated and then packaged at the end. Just incredible. And then you, you got the little robot forklift trucks running around the shop, bringing materials to the different work cells. And then right next to the BMW wheel bearing cell, you have the Audi A4 wheel bearing cell. Another <laughs> one. So you know, just picture a plant like that with 60 machines in one cell and this entire building's holding 40 or 50 cells. And, and they're just pumping so, out. Millions. So what I take away from that is there's just at companies like SKF, there's so much embedded institutional knowledge of automation of entire manufacturing processes. As you said, the 60 machines, that's a lot of different machines, a lot of different things happening. And yet for them, if the new Tesla comes out and they want to put in a bearing line, they're not reinventing the wheel. They have a playbook. They have the people, they have all the resources to implement that with perhaps a slightly different flavor or twist. Sure. The, the tremendous amount of standardization, you know, mm-hmm. so you, you think about the machining areas, the machining cells that they have, you know, just within aerospace. Once they figured out what type of machining cell they wanted, mm-hmm. that was then replicated at all the aerospace bearing manufacturers. So we had five different bearing manufacturing locations for aerospace. Each one of them either had the cell as it was designed or was developing and implementing the cell. And then with that, you know, it was very easy to move on to the next product because the the bearings kind of were developed off of one another. So a lot of that technology was already ingrained in the system there. And then the manufacturing engineering was now become standardized and universal in a global sense. You know, plus it gives you all the, the risk reduction and mitigation. You know, if, if something would happen at one factory, that production could easily shift to another factory. That's really helpful in understanding your background because it seems like you were just a perfect fit to come in and lead Microtronics. Can you tell us about Microtronics, their history for how they started and to what sure. Microtronics does today? Yeah, like you said, Microtronics has been around since 1968. They started with an EDM shop, just a couple of EDM machines doing the electric discharge machining. And that was brand new back then. So the founder, Mr. Maruzzi, way back when, he was an ex-Air Force jet pilot. And mm. he wanted to stay active in aerospace. And so he was investigating new technologies that were needed. And in the Phoenix area here, they, they needed this EDM technology to machine, you know, highly critical dimensioned and polished parts. And so they developed a shop, but just with a couple of machines, it eventually grew into to what it is today, where we've got probably 40 to 50 machines just for EDM. Over the years, 
they really have this whole culture of serving the customer. You know, one thing I just hit me when I walked in the door for the first interviews was how much focus and attention was spent on time delivery. And oh God, what a relief that is. Coming in from a, a few other shops or, and seeing you know competitors fail because they just couldn't serve the customer. You know, if you can't deliver the product, then you're really not worth that much to customers. So just knowing that a company plays so much emphasis on on-time delivery and customer satisfaction, big relief off of my mind because it, it's hard to teach that, hard okay. to shift the culture to, to understand that. But that's been here since day one and, and remains here today. And with that mantra, they evolved into doing different work. So obviously with the EDM shop, you're going to want to have some auxiliary equipment and machining. So the machine shop grew out of that. So for a time period, they were doing both EDM and machining work. And then about 30 years ago, our top customer came to us and said, hey, we're, we're having trouble with one of our suppliers. You're making the rubber molds for these people already. Would you be interested in doing the rubber molding? And so they got into uh, fabric reinforced diaphragms and that's just how they took it on. You know, they, they looked at, here's an opportunity to help our customer more, to grow with them, add a bunch of business. They had no reservation about jumping into a completely different technology and manufacturing process. And so they started their journey into rubber molding 30 years ago. Now that actually is the majority of our sales is in rubber molded product. It's grown over the years. We've added different materials. Not only do we make rubber diaphragms, but uh, we're bonding to different metal components, steels, aluminum, even some oddball alloys that we get into. And we're doing it for a variety of industries, whether it's aerospace, industrial, medical, uh, and so on. The two brothers, Charlie and Johnny, are involved in the business today. Their mother is involved, but not day-to-day. I would have to say it was pretty courageous for the family to put aside their egos and bring an outsider in to lead their company. And a lot of faith on the flip side by yourself to believe that you would actually get to run a family business without interference. So I want to unpack this a little bit because there may be listeners who are in a similar situation where there's a lot of opportunity for a shop, but they may feel that perhaps the family felt that they can't do it alone. They don't know how to do it. They're perhaps afraid of losing control. What do you think prompted them to say, we want to find a leader for our company in this point in the company's history? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, it's, you know, I, as a contract manufacturer before, I, I was working for a family-owned company at, at Molded Dimensions. I mean, so I had a little flavor of that, got a little understanding of, of what that meant. The Maruzzi accident had been great, really. I mean, you know, you talk about ego, didn't really see it which was good. You know, I mean, obviously that's one of the things I'm looking for as a potential candidate. Am I really going to be allowed to lead and drive the company in a certain direction? So I think it's been very cooperative. We had some good, frank, open discussions at the beginning. But I think really for them, you know, there was some consolidation of ownership between the different family members over the last couple of years. And so that got resolved they had brought in another board member who's been their HR consultant to date. And I think he helped them 
to kind of come around to the point of, okay, we, we need to do something here. Charlie and Johnny, you know, really bright young guys understand the business, but maybe just don't have that experience to see a vision where that needs to go. And I think that's kind of what they were looking for in, in myself and the other candidates that they interviewed was who understands the business they have, try to find somebody who, you know, I, I think this is what I bring someone to the table is that, you know, I'm, I'm not looking to forget about their past. I'm looking to build mm, on this. Right. It's a collaborative uh, venture. Exactly. So, you know, my, my management style is very much one of evolution. So where have we been? What are our strengths and weaknesses? How do I build on those strengths? And then how do I address the weakness? So from the family perspective, I, I think we had some great discussions uh, during the interview process. We both got more comfortable with each other and really taking that leap of faith to say, okay, Jeff, come on in, uh, be our president. Uh, we're we're going to give you the, the tools and the, the freedom to you know, kind of show us the way. But of course, we're going to have a board of directors and we have to report to those as I would expect too. And that's all the proper checks and balances. So it's really nothing new for me. You know, even though I came from a big company, some of my operations really operated like a small company environment where we had a lot of control just because we knew the customers best and knew the product line best. And so that approach seemed to be working well here. And like I said, one of the first things we did was we reviewed the strategic plan. Is that before you were hired? No. Well, they had actually done their strategic plan before I was hired. They let, knew- let, let me ask you some questions before we, we get to after you were hired. Sure. So it, it is very important, obviously, to develop the rapport and start to gain the mutual respect of one another. Can you give us some real specific details how you and they approach that and how many meetings, phone calls, in person, all those sort of things, because this is really relevant to somebody who wants to do this. Sure, sure. Yeah, we had a couple face-to-face interviews, a phone interview before the face-to-face, and probably at least three to four phone calls throughout kind of the, the negotiation process, let's say, to, to come to a final deal in terms of employment and all that. So I, I think we had a, a quite a bit of discussion there. And, and that's really important, you know, especially looking at it from the family's perspective. Mm-hmm. You're asking somebody to come in here, you're basically giving the, the, the keys to the Cadillac saying, don't wrap it around a tree. Don't nick it up too much and, uh, and drive safe out there. But I think that's really it. But ultimately, there's that leap of faith. And, uh, you know, one, I think from a, a long-term compensation, we're, we're actually still working out a final detail. That's, that's really important because it sounds like you're a year in and that's important for you because you are not an owner, but you had to have the respect and the trust to be able to say, we're, we're going to figure this out along the way. Yeah, and I, and I think that helped bridge the gap. I, I think I, I was willing to trust them to do their part. I, I met with them enough, talked with them enough where, yeah, I, I, I can trust these people. I, I respect these people. I think they have good judgment. I think they're negotiating good faith. And I hope the same was true from their perspective as they were working with me. And I, I assume it was because they hired me. Yeah, you're, you're going to have to make that leap of faith and, and use your best judgment. You know, they actually had their entire management staff sit down with me and ask me questions before they hired me as well, because they recognize that it's, it's not just about them being comfortable with me. 
But the management team that they had already trusted and, and built a rapport for, they, they didn't want to undermine what they had with the existing staff. Uh, so I thought that was interesting. That doesn't always happen. I think that's a great way to approach it. I think also one of the, that there's so many aspects, but a way that I look at it as well in, in with my two key hires on my executive team was, would I want to hang out after work and have a beer with this person and not talk about work at all? Well, we did that during the interview process. Lucy and I went out to dinner along with uh, Jim, our, our HR consultant, board member. We had a nice casual dinner downtown Tempe after uh, the interview process. You're going to be working with someone and it doesn't matter if everything else is a fit on paper, but if the personal chemistry isn't there, then you're trying to force it. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's one of those lessons learned over the years. You know, just... You just be yourself. You know, there's no point in putting an act on for someone. It isn't going to work out if, if you're trying to play a role. But when the chips are down, the pressure's on, you know, the true self emerges. And, you know, it's, it's just to be honest, level with people. It's the best way to get business done. How did they go about looking for ending up you, but this role? Did they advertise? Did they use headhunters? Yeah, they used a professional search firm. And had them do the legwork for them. So I, I was approached by a professional search firm first, went through a screening interview with them. And from a shop owner's perspective, were you looking at that time or were you just, your skills created a match where the search firm contacted you and made you aware of the opportunity? I, I would say passively looking, let's say. You know, I, I reached out to a few key companies I thought highly of. I, I would receive calls, you know, every now and then from uh, headhunters and I'd entertain those calls just to see what was going on. Uh, definitely had some target locations. You know, part of my decision was to, to get out of the high tax state of Illinois, the, the bankrupt state of Illinois, move to a state with more common sense. Fortunately, Arizona was on the list. You, you talked a lot about this process of coming on board. I'm going to ask it in a different way. What would you say to a shop owner who wants to bring a Jeff George into their organization? How do you go about it? What's attractive to a Jeff George? What would turn you off? You know, the, the big thing I look for is, is you know, with the, with the lean manufacturing in the back of my mind, you know, the, the freaking engineer in the back of my mind, I don't <laughs> want to approach a, a, a shop tour in the sense of how does this look from a lean manufacturing viewpoint? You know, yeah, you know, fairly well into my career, uh, you know, I'm not going to make a change on a whim. want to see something that stands out about the operation. You know, I, I want to make sure it's a clean shop, you know, messy shop, disorganized, you know, garbage paperwork laying all around in, in no particular order. I'm out. You know, that that's a killer for me. Product wise, you know, is there a product niche? You know, with, with all this overseas competition now and this whole drive by big companies like SKF to go after uh, low cost country production. And your, your work can be taken anywhere in the world nowadays and done somewhere else cheaper. So I, I really felt it was important. Is there a product niche that, that keeps this product around that doesn't give you, you know, that, that big black swan event that's going to kill your business? So there's some level of security and safety in, in the product offering. And so with that niche of this, this these fabric reinforced diaphragms, aerospace, a good bit of military work. I mean, just like where I came from, 
you know, you're restricted in where you can manufacture military parts. So it's going to have to be made in the USA. And that restricts the, the potential competitive takeaway of the product. So those are a couple of things I, I look for. And obviously the ownership, it got to be somebody you can relate to, get along with, work with closely. If you don't have that immediate rapport, it's, it's just not going to work. And much like, you know, when I interview job candidates for positions that I have open, you know, I'm looking for that attitude. Some things that have frustrated me in my career and, you know, people are just happy with the status quo. That doesn't drive and motivate me. You know, if we're just going to, you know, run the cash cow here till it dries, then I, I really don't want to be a part of that. I want to be something that makes you want to be better. You know, what can I come in and improve? What can I build upon? What can I grow the business to? Oh, always has to be something I'm going after, reaching for. That, that's just one of those internal drives in me. And so when I look for people, I, I want to see that same sort of attitude in them. You know, somebody that, that wants to keep growing, wants to learn, wants to develop, wants to do something that hasn't been done before. What I'm hearing is if I am going to bring on a professional manager, I better know up front whether I just want somebody to manage what the business is doing now or know that I can live with them making a lot of changes in the business for the betterment of the business, but there will be change and I have to be comfortable in allowing that change to happen because it'll either create a lot of angst for me or it'll create a lot of angst when I interfere with the, the person brought in. So be really honest with yourself when you're making that hire. Yeah, that's for sure. Uh, you you got to know if, if you want a manager you know, who's just going to be a babysitter or, yeah. or do you want a leader you know, who's going to come in and transform your company? Yeah. yeah. So we talked a little bit about you came in on board March 16th, but what did the first let's sort of take away the COVID aspect. You would have had a plan to come in that first week anyways. What did that week look like from getting to know the team? Some of the first things that that you wanted to do or did? Oh, wanted to and did are different things. So yeah, grand plans. I plan to come in here, walk around the shop, meet everybody, shake their hands, get to know everyone from the ground up. And then all of a sudden we're wearing masks and social, that's out the window. Fortunately, SKF did a lot with uh, Teams, Microsoft Teams for online overseas meetings and whatnot. So I I was well versed in Teams and we just jumped into doing our meetings that way. You know, for some of it, you know, our our first management team meetings were we're all sitting at our individual offices at our desks, looking at the screen, (laughs) talking with each other, just crazy ridiculous that way you know never would have pictured actually in the first week two weeks before walking into the building from a a strategy standpoint they shared the strategy a little bit with me ahead of time and then i i got fully into their strategic plan so that that went as planned but obviously okay we we got to change some numbers you know unfortunately down but the fundamentals of the strategy remain the same. But we wanted to diversify our customer base instead of being, you know, say 90% aerospace. We want to mm. spread that out. And unfortunately, we're paying the price for that this year. If we were more diverse coming into the year, it would have been better. And not only that, but also even within aerospace, pay more attention to the other customers that we have, grow and nurture and develop the existing customer base, but also try to add on, even within aerospace, different customers, more products, 
grow the material offering. You know, even though we, we do a lot of different rubber materials, having the background I do, it's like, yeah, you, you want a new material? I'll reach back, you know, put my other hat on, become a rubber compounder for a day. We'll, we'll have a new material if you need something. And so we could go that way, looking at the products offering. The last 10 years here at Microtronics, was very focused on rubber products. And unfortunately, as a lot of your job shop listeners know, you ignore your other products, they're going to suffer. And so EDM suffered, machine components suffered, not because they didn't care about it, but they just weren't giving it the regular care and feeding that it needed to keep that healthy and growing and developing. One thing I found unusual, but maybe not that unusual for a smaller contract house was uh, the absence of a sales force. So one of the first things we started doing was, okay, how are we going out to market? Brand awareness is was suffering. Everyone in the Valley knew about us, but you get outside of the greater Phoenix area, who's heard of uh, Microtronics? And so we, we did a lot of effort from an online marketing standpoint, obviously in 2020, and we continue to do other efforts. And someday when trade shows return, we'll probably do some trade shows, but trying to get that brand awareness up, the Microtronics name out in the marketplace that so we are doing both uh, digital and print advertising and marketing. And then uh, we also have some additional plans, probably to expand the sales force. Charlie actually became our our business development manager. So that's his full-time role now. Dedicated. Yep. And and so now we we have that full-time focus of going out and growing new and existing customers. And you're not a small shop. So not to have a sales force just could you share how many people roughly the shop has as team members? Yeah, we, we've got roughly uh, 125 employees. You know, so we're a pretty large shop as far as uh, machine houses go. Even for rubber molding houses, we're on the higher end. I, I still think we're larger than maybe molder dimensions is today. But yeah, so, you know, they, they were just so happy with word of mouth and it, it seemed to get it done for them. The top couple of customers just kept bringing on more and more business. And that was great in one sense, it, you know, it validated how good we are in that on-time delivery and customer service aspect, because they just kept giving us more and we kept absorbing it and, and putting it out. But at the same time, it, it, it made us really overly tied to those top customers. And so when they're all in that one bucket of aerospace and you got a bad aerospace here, makes it tough. So it really drove uh, the point home of diversification. You know, can't say that enough for, for all your listeners is uh, for diversification and market. What's your target for percentage of sales for your largest customer? Do you have one? I, I do. You know, I, I thought Molded Dimensions did a great job of that back in the day. Their largest customer was about 30% of their business and uh, they were in a variety of industries. So that's my roll of thumb in the back of my head. I, I thought that worked so fabulously for them. That would be my ideal goal for uh, Microtronics here. I'll share with the listeners because this will probably seem so foreign, but my goal, and we never exceeded it, was the largest customer was never more than 5% of sales. Even better. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like stock market portfolio. Diversify as much as possible. Absolutely. Before we started recording, you shared that you had just completed a Gemba walk out in the shop. And I think that's a great lead in because I promised that we would dive into systems and processes. And I know I'll say in a very superficial way, lean manufacturing, because I did not 
know the term Gemba. So could you start by telling us what a Gemba walk is? Yeah, Gemba walks is simply your daily, you know, five minute toolbox talk, if you want. Just go department to department. We see what's going on in each department. We have five categories that we're evaluating quickly. They have a daily board and they put up a sticker for how they performed in each category for each day of the month. Mm-hmm. So obviously safety, you know, no accidents, no near misses. Quality, you know, you turn out quality product and, and hit your quality level in the department. So we're trying to get that entire flow of quality throughout the shop. You know, it's, it's good, but coming in here, my feeling was that it's, you know, it, it depended on the individual less, uh, more so than the process. And so I'm trying mm-hmm. to bring process control in rather than manual individual controls. Quality was number two, delivery. On-time delivery, just going to build right on the culture here. Cost, cost reduction. And cost can take the shape of, you know, if you were running behind on a job and you had to set it overnight, that's a cost hit. You know, something went wrong in the schedule, something got delayed in the process, that was extra cost. You know, could be other things there. You know, right now we, we did a whole lot of uh, lean training recently on uh, setup reduction for a machine shop, an EDM shop. And so cost comes into play is... Or, you know, did you use your quick setup fixtures? Did you hit your targeted changeover time going job to job in your machine? Mm-hmm. So that would show up as cost hit. And then finally, uh, productivity. So did you hit your rates? So in the molding department, you know, did you get the, the number of parts out per press? Do you do the Gemba walk alone or is it a team effort? Do you do it every day? The management team goes on the walk once a week. And then we expect the shop floor supervisors to do daily with their team. And so we're in that transition right now. So, you know, we've been doing this in certain departments for four months, other departments, just a month or so. So they're, they're still ramping that up as far as hitting the, the daily walks at the supervisory level. Obviously systems and processes are just embedded in who you are now in your work ethic. You've been here at Microtronics almost a year. And you said some things are just starting to happen. So this is a process. This is an evolution to use your word. So obviously Microtronics was doing a lot of things really well. They wouldn't be as successful as they are. What though are some of the gaps that you saw in their systems and processes that got you excited that if we can narrow these gaps at least if not indeed fix them, there's so much opportunity for cost savings, efficiency savings, maybe better quality, all those things. Where did you want to start? Where do you see the opportunities? And where, I guess, are probably the opportunities in a lot of shops out there? Well, you know, fortunately for Microtronics, being primarily an aerospace shop, a lot of documentation and paperwork. So even though the, the process and systems weren't designed in, they came in with the customer requirements. Uh, mm. So when you get a NADCAP audit certification, all the process with that, it is a fairly well-documented process that has to take place. And so that was in here already. But again, it was things driven by the customer or the product requirement, not items that we as Microtronics had said, we're going to put this process in place so it's effective, efficient, standardized. So that's really what I'm doing. And what I saw coming in here is these were product and customer driven systems and processes in place. 
sense, but they didn't have that holistic standpoint and, and viewpoint of how do we want to run our shop the best? You know, you deal with many different customers, many different products, and it, it gives you this jumble of process and systems. What we need to do is, is get back to the standardization and look at it from, you know, the helicopter view, see the whole picture, figure out, okay, where can we be better, more efficient? And, and so that's really what I see is, is even today, it, there's a lot of manual it, process that can be taken out and automated. Can you give us a story of a specific area where you implemented this? Oh, let's see. Yeah, if I, if I can, I'll use an office. Sure, uh, yeah. I went through their, their first performance review cycle while I was here. And they're doing it all on, on paper, on Excel sheets. And you know, our HR manager has got to take all this paper, compile it, type it all into the system on what everyone's grade and performance was. What are you doing? There's software that does this. You know, in fact, the same people that process our payroll run this software. And so just, you know, had her get in contact with the group doing our payroll and said, yeah, we, we want to add the performance review portion of the software as well. And oh, magic, you know, the paperwork and, and now it's automated and we're just coming up on our first cycle with performance reviews to be done on the software. And then it's on record. You, you don't have to go digging for the records. There's a database. You'll be able to see everyone's training record. You know, one of our things for the AS9100 last audit was there are a couple of things they couldn't find on the training record because it was all manual paper. Well, mm. now that's gone away. It's it's all in the database on the system. What, what payroll software is this? I say it's, I think, ADPs. It's one of the big standards out there. So a lot of the, the smaller shops that go to medium size and so on, they all go through kind of this evolution where it, it gets to a point yes. where, you know, okay, well, we should probably just do payroll on the outside and quit printing and signing our own checks. What was the incremental cost to add these other HR functions because it's not that large is it it's 17 bucks an employee we already have based off of per year per year per year 100 employees 1700 dollars. not and how much time are you going to save by not looking for that piece of paper right that was one of the things then i mentioned you know that we we just did setup production training Mm -hmm. that's a big area for us with, with all the edm machines with all the cncs that we have you know just saw that uh, a mile away on, on even my first walkthroughs. And it's taken us this long to get to this point because I wanted to utilize the Manufacturing Extension Partnership trainer. Uh-huh. It's been closed down because of COVID. There was no training going on for nine months. You know, so January was the first month we could get the trainer in here to uh, do that. And it's probably something I could have got to as well, but you know, what are you going to do? Whether you're president, your owner, whatever, you, you got a million things you need to do every day. You got to prioritize. Training. I've heard that word several times. It was probably just part of what happened at SKF. What, how do you view training? How much of the, as a percentage of revenue, do you look at training where the training dollars should be? Where do you think the biggest bang for the buck is? And just in general, why does a job shop want to invest money in training? Yeah, I guess, you know, back in the day, you know, I, I complain and bitch about training. You know, all this required training from HR, it's a waste of my time. I got better things to be doing. But again, from that holistic 
standpoint is, are all your supervisors on the same page? You know, does anybody really understand lean manufacturing in, in the small shop? And so I've had a couple people that understand bits and pieces, or they'll tell me, oh yeah, I have my 5S training. <laughs> you know, it's like, really? You know, like you missed four of the five S's. Getting everyone on the same page, you know, much like standardization of equipment, it's almost like standardization of employee knowledge. You know, how do you expect them to perform at the level you want unless they understand where they're going and where they need to be? And so from a, a budgetary standpoint, I, I would say probably my training budget's probably in the neighborhood of of a half to a full percent of sales annually. And I try to maximize that wherever I, I can. So like I mentioned, the, the Manufacturing Extension Partnership, you know, that's a nationwide program. This isn't the first time I've used them. In Wisconsin, I used WMEP, Wisconsin Manufacturing Extension Partnership. In Illinois, I used IMEC, their partnership. Now in Arizona, I'm using AZMEP. And they're all great organizations. And they're usually staffed with experienced personnel will come in. And, and because of the COVID, we qualified for a discount on the training cost. And it's like, how, how do you go wrong? You know, they're usually the most economical training platform you can find out there and then getting a, a federal discount on top of that. You know, you can't go wrong. That's an important point is there are a lot of dollars Many times you have to pay 50% of it, but if you're going to do the training anyways, and I think you should, yeah. it was valuable for Rapid. Why not get these folks involved beyond the cost savings? They are very experienced in doing this. And I think in terms of standardization, I'll just add, having a common vocabulary amongst the people in the shop to talk about whatever it is, is incredibly helpful and valuable just right. using the right, right words with one another. Technology, where do you see the opportunity and the role of technology in bettering the systems and processes at Microtronics? You know, that, that's something that was actually stood out to, you know, my first walk through an interview here. Johnny, the other uh, brother here, Johnny Maruziak, is in charge of the ERP system. So they had just updated their ERP system before I'd come in here. We're using the Sightline system, which fortunately I had some experience with a couple of my shops that SKF were you running the same software, but they've done a lot as far as generating some customer reports. So in each department, we more or less have, you know, the, the top product hit list for the day that shows up real time. So in any department, if the job's not currently running, you'll see exactly which job needs to start next. And that's based on delivery date and, and customer requirement. And so that, that's been extremely helpful. So, you know, nobody has to run around the shop, tell you what right. you need to work on. It's right there on the display board. So everyone can just look up and see, okay, that's my next job that goes in next. I understand Johnny has, although he's not a software developer, he's got a lot of software programming skills and he's very proficient with Python and he's used that to build dashboards and some other things. Can you just share a little bit of where specifically the efforts that he's focused on have made an impact or how they're being used at Microtronics? Sure. It's been really valuable as we've been uh, jumping into the, the lean journey here, trying to get our daily productivity measures. He's been able to automate most of that, which is great help. You know, just chasing down data just can take hours, days sometimes to get accurate data. 
but with the the dashboards that he's been able to pick up, you know, he, he can take the data right out of the ERP system. We also have in our CNC area, we run machine metrics as mm-hmm. our data collection for all the machines. So he's able to take that data, compile it with the ERP data. So we're getting daily re- reports, not only on total shipments out the door, but we're seeing daily productivity numbers in all departments. So that's immediate feedback, not only for management, for the employees and supervisors of each department. They know leaving the, de- the door for the day, did I do a good job? Did I hit my numbers? Did I satisfy the customer? And that's so powerful. You know, that's way better than me or any of the staff running around having to tell each and every person how they did for that day. They get the immediate feedback. I see this as the biggest opportunity for contract manufacturing in general is that there are a lot of good islands of automation, of technology, of data gathering, but they're islands. And what it sounds like Johnny is at Microtronics, the glue connecting them and making sense of that outside of what the programs specifically offer. So it's really great that you have someone on board who can do that. Are you thinking about a way to amplify that? And if so, how are you going to go about it? Well, he's, he's actually working that on already. Uh, he's got a great engineering staff and IT. Team. So he's he's brought on a couple new CNC programmers who have great experience that they're bringing in here. And so they're not only helping us with the programming, they're getting involved now with some of the fixture design and work, some of the concepts. So one of the things we've been working on is how can we avoid machining apart on two different machines? And so as we work on machine standardization, we're starting to funnel things towards our best machines to make sure they're operating around the clock as much as possible. And the programmers are bringing some of the experience with different techniques they might have picked up at other shops in their past and and bring that to the forefront. And then his IT group in terms of integrating software. One One of the best things actually with the IT group's help and Johnny was what Charlie's been working on was not only with your paperless parts quoting software, we integrated that with HubSpot for a CRM. That was another important thing that was missing here. We had no customer relation database here. So we, we have the paperless now integrated with HubSpot. And, and now we're also tying that direct with our online marketing campaign, such that we're getting a, a full view of customer contact all the way through quoting. And now with Johnny's help, actually being able to look at that cycle time after we get the order, to customer fulfillment for that first production run. I like how that's all coming together. How big is his IT team? Uh, two people, but uh, you know, they run around, they do a good job, keep things run. What would you say to a shop owner who says, I can't afford a full-time IT person on at my company? How would you suggest that they rethink that so that person is affordable? Yeah, I mean, you know, that, that's always the problem, you know, with the smaller job shops, you know, yeah, it's, it's always resource management. And, and sometimes, you know, you can call on somebody in your own organization that maybe has an aptitude or skill in that area to wear another hat, right? That, that doesn't happen at job shops too often, does it? You're wearing five different hats. But, you know, that's, that's a start. You know, find somebody with an aptitude. That's really, you know, one of our guys is just, you know, the son of another employee here who has an aptitude for it. You know, so we, mm-hmm. we brought him in. We could start part-time 
and eventually grew into full-time employment for him. When you say an aptitude, does he have a formal degree, whether a bachelor's or associates in this area? You know, I'm not sure about our younger guy, but I, you know, the older gentleman in charge of IT does. You know, so he's got background in that. So you know, really, I mean, that's the great thing with the, the millennials here. They're so tech savvy. Yes. So, you know, whether it's your IT group or even, you know, Johnny, Charlie, whoever, if they're of the right age, that talent usually exists somewhere in your organization. You just may need to ask a few questions and, and poke around and find it. And, and if all else fails, I mean, you, you can find outside contract personnel to do this type of work for you. I, I would say that the most important thing, much like with your machines, your software, you need to think about it holistically for that integration. You know, what pieces fit together? For example, I've been using ACT for 20 years as my customer relation database. I had to give it up because ACT no longer supports much of anything. It was a huge ACT fan and... When we went to Salesforce, it was so painful, but it was yeah. the right thing to do. I think Salesforce was the other one we looked at besides HubSpot. But then, you know, because of the connection with Paperless, the mm-hmm. HubSpot to our online marketing firm, you know, HubSpot was it. Made sense. One question that relates to the, the future, and there's probably a, not a, a lot of process wrapped around it yet, but perhaps there is. 3D printing, you make solid rubber shapes. And am I correct in saying that you have brought 3D printing on board? We're, we're trying to figure out where we're going with 3D printing. So, you know, Johnny, you know, he's a creative guy and he brought on a, a printer to uh, see what we can do with it. Probably the biggest thing we made was the face mask holders that wrap around your neck. Probably our largest running product. It's actually much more helpful and where I've used it in the past is fixtures. So if you need an inspection fixture, you know, it may take five days to get something through the tool shop, but I can print it overnight. It might be a fixture that you use in EDM or machining to hold something else. It's been a great use to come up with quick fixturing, experimental fixturing. Also, if you want to get an idea of what is my part really going to look like ahead of time, you know, you you can cut down a lot of development time for new products, you know, say, you know, you're waiting a couple of weeks for materials to come in, you're building your mold. That's going to take three weeks before you have the mold, but you want to really visualize and see what this part looks like. Just print it up, take a look at it ahead of time. You can get your, your manufacturing engineer three weeks advance notice to get his mind wrapped around what he's going to have to do to process this new part by just printing it up. Well, Jeff, this has been such a great conversation. One last question before we end. What's got you most excited about 2021? About 2020. It's, it's getting back to what we wanted to do day one, walking in the door here in March. really forward looking, you know, everything's under control. The costs are in control. We, we know where we're going. I think we're kind of through the trough as far as the uh, disruption in sales and manufacturing due to the virus. And and it's all kind of bright skies and growth ahead, you know, so really it's okay. How, how do I start flipping the switches on in each department, in each area, approaching new customers, bringing on new products. We've got a new brand new wire EDM machine coming in next week. You know, so we're investing in capital equipment again. So we've got some new things coming in the rubber department. We've got a injection molding machine coming later in the year. So that's going to heighten our abilities to hit those higher volumes. So we'll easily be able to break 100,000 pieces a year if we need to. 
with an injection molding machine there. And so I'm just really charged up because there's so much I want to do. There's so much potential that this, this business has to grow. And we're, we're already seeing it in EDM machining, you know, obviously, you know, a little less complicated, less fill of material complexity there. That new business comes on a lot sooner, but we're just starting to see the additional growth in rubber products as well. So we, we've entered a couple of new product categories last year. You know, we're already seeing additional growth from those customers in that area for, let's say, electrical connector insulators. And we're also uh, rolling out FDA compliant rubber products for food contact and medical contact. Something I'm bringing from my past there. Excellent. So great things ahead. It's just exciting to bring something new in, get everybody charged up and, and, and see the energy, you know, just seeing all the light bulbs go on just during our setup reduction training. It's like, okay, people are getting it. You know, they're starting to see what the vision is. They know where we're heading and they're starting to believe and, and just seeing smiles on people's faces, you know, at least during lunchtime when they're not wearing their masks. <laughs> <laughs> is there anything we didn't cover that you want to get out to our listeners? You know, I, I think it's just, uh, you know, it's nice kind of talking shop with yourself and hopefully some of these other listeners out there, you know, if they need any rubber or machine products, uh, come calling. It's exciting dynamic. It's really different environment from the big corporate structure. And, and sometimes you get, you get stuck and there's too much red tape to go through. Mm-hmm. And just being in that small company environment again, you know, you're, you're so empowered as a small company, you know, whether you're the owner or the president, whatever, you don't have the red tape. If you want to make it happen, you go out and make it happen today. And that's so refreshing. It just just fills me with energy and it's great to see immediate results. That is a great place to end, Jeff. And for a shop owner who is looking to bring in a Jeff George, just clip that little last audio portion and use that to convince them to move a large company. (laughs) Take me, get me away from the red tape. Well, it's so rare, relatively rare to find someone who has been very successful in a large company in their manufacturing career to make that jump to the smaller custom part shops. So many skills embedded in your background that you just take for granted, Gemba walks. And for us to excel as manufacturers, standardization and process control is so important and will make a difference. So thank you, Jeff, for sharing some of these with our listeners. I really appreciate you being open about talking about the family dynamics about you coming on board and how to make it successful on both sides. That is gold for the audience. How can people reach you and Microtronics if they have a follow-up question? Sure. You can find us on the web at uh, micro-tronics.com. You know, look us up in Tempe, Arizona. We should be in all the yellow pages. Find us on ThomasNet. Just Google us. You know, we'll, we'll show up and you know, we'd love to talk to you. Love to do business with you and, and really want to thank you for having me on your show, Jay. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Jeff. It- learned so much. I think these conversations are so enlightening and the gears are whirling in my head. There is so much to learn from what large manufacturers are doing and coupling those with the coupling those practices with the nimbleness of a small shop is part of what will strengthen the U.S. manufacturing base and make us more competitive, more able to keep manufacturing contained within these 50 states. So much opportunity. 
Oh yeah. I mean, you think about, you know, what, what that large company can bring, you know, you know, it gets back to benchmark. If you want to be the best in the industry, you got to benchmark, you know, not only maybe against your competitors, but go to a different industry. My historic thing is in the rubber industry, I never benchmarked the rubber industry. I looked at the rubber industry as kind of a dinosaur. I looked at plastics. What were the plastics mm. doing for efficiencies? You know, when you're competing on pennies and nickels, her part in a super competitive worldwide environment like plastics, oh my gosh, you have to be efficient. You have to be doing the best in every process the whole way. And so, yeah, your benchmark might not be in your own industry, but take a look around, find those benchmarks, look at what the big companies are doing. And even if you're not making, you know, 100,000 pieces, a million pieces at a time, there's something you can learn, especially as you adapt, you know, quick change setups. You know, injection molding machine, I'm not going to use that to make a hundred thousand, a million pieces at a time. I'm going to be using it for 50 to a couple thousand pieces at a time. But I figured out how to do the quick change. So, you know, it's not going to cost me anything. You know, I'm going to use that machine as, as efficiently as possible. Another nugget from Jeff George. Thank you, Jeff. And right. folks, until next time, keep those spindles turning, those lasers cutting. And those injection molding machines pumping out hundreds of thousands of parts. Have a great day.